When Charles Darwin published his landmark observations in 1859, he lamented that the fossil record was still quite poor at that time. It was only in the last century or so earlier that anyone had even proposed the possibility that a single species could completely die out, and the first dinosaur wasn't discovered until Darwin was a boy. Fossils were known by previous generations, of course, but extinct and therefore unfamiliar varieties were often mistaken for the fanciful monsters of mythology, if they were recognized at all, which usually requires a well-trained perception of both geology and animal morphology. That's especially rare when you're talking about an organism no one has ever seen alive. When something dies, it is usually disassembled, digested, and decomposed. Only rarely is anything ever fossilized, and even fewer things are very well preserved. Because the conditions required for that process are so particular, the fossil record can only represent a tiny fraction of everything that has ever lived. Darwin provided many environmental dynamics explaining why no single quarry could ever provide a continuous record of biological events and why it would be impossible to find all the fossilized ancestors of every lineage. But despite this, he predicted that future generations, having the benefit of better understanding, would discover a substantial number of fossil species which he called intermediate or transitional between what we see alive today and their taxonomic ancestors at successive levels in paleontological history. In fact, in the century and a half since then, we found millions of evolutionary intermediaries in the fossil record, much more than Darwin said he could reasonably hope for. There are three different types of transitional forms and we have ample examples of each, but creationists still insist that we've never found a single one, because what they usually ask us to present are impossible parodies which evolution would neither produce nor permit. You've got to be able to prove transitional forms, one animal transitioning into another, and all through the fossil record and life, we don't find one of these. A crocoduck. There's just nothing like it. In fact, Darwin explained in detail why we should not find anything like this. We're not looking for any blend of two species that both currently exist. Such a thing would actually go against evolution. Instead, he said that if his theory were true, that what we should find would be a basal form potentially ancestral to both current species. And in this one case alone, we found dozens of them in a near continuous lineage dating back to the dawn of the Mesozoic era. The most famous one was the first ever recognized as such. Archaeopteryx lithographica was discovered in 1860. It was the first of many lines of evidence revealing that birds had evolved from dinosaurs, so Darwin's theory was first vindicated while he was still alive. Of course, creationists will never accept that and still complain that Archaeopteryx can't be intermediate because we can't prove it's the single crown species from which all other birds emerged. But it doesn't have to be, and that's not what transitional means. In biology, species can be precisely identified genetically, but in paleontology, they're determined morphologically. So creationists argued that Archaeopteryx still doesn't qualify because it's a 100% bird. But they're difficult to pin down as to why they say this, because this animal, like all other quasi-birds of that age, lacks many definitive features of modern birds, and it retains so many distinctly saurian features that when the last Archaeopteryx was found in the 1960s, the traces of its feathers weren't immediately evident, and it was thus mistaken for a small dinosaur called Compsonathus. But creationists continue to use every excuse they can think of to dismiss Archaeopteryx as an intermediate species. They complained that its lungs weren't right to be transitional, or that it had the wrong kind of pelvis. They even tried to imply that every such fossil found so far were fakes. They think any excuse will do, and they've done the same, attempting to summarily dispute every additional intermediary ever seen since. No matter what, creationists will never admit that anything we ever find can fulfill Darwin's prediction of transitional intermediates. 
This is why creationists demand only monstrous absurdities or issue challenges they know still couldn't be satisfied no matter how true evolution may be because they know already that whatever they insist on seeing today, we may show them tomorrow and if that happens, they'll have to make up new excuses for why it still doesn't count. So they won't request to see anything evolution actually requires and they usually won't define any criteria they would accept either because they already know they won't accept anything even if we show them everything they ever ask for. It doesn't help that they won't look at what they don't want to see, either. Many people think there are no transitional species because the only fossil forms they're aware of at all are a handful of plastic pieces in a prehistoric playset. They've no idea how rich the fossil record is. We know of several hundred species just within dinosaurs to say nothing of the thousands of examples of each of hundreds more taxa apart from that. Experts estimate that all the collective genera still roaming around now only amount to about 1% of all the species that have ever lived. Practically everything there ever was ain't no more. Every species living today has definite relatives both extant and extinct and evident in the fossil record. And in one sense, all of them, even the things still alive, count as transitional species. But of course creationists don't accept that and insist on a much more restrictive definition. That's fine. But in order to determine for certain whether anything does or doesn't meet the requirements, we have to know what those requirements are. And there is one creationist website brazen enough to post a definition of transitional species, which is also correct according to evolutionary biologists. So at least we can verify there is a common set of criteria both groups can agree upon. However, this site also says that no such evolutionary links have ever been found, but then it goes on to list several that have been attempting to dismiss extant examples of single-celled and multicellular transitions, the successive phylogeny of insects, the emergence of vertebrates and of whales, amphibian fish, therapsid mammal-like reptiles, and acquired adaptations for flight in dinosaurs, pterosaurs, insects, and bats. I wrote to one of the webmasters of this site and pointed out all these items in their list of things never found that we actually have and explained how all of them meet every one of the criteria he himself laid out. He wrote back saying he knew that of course but wouldn't make any corrections on the excuse that he could ignore even his own rules if he needed to. A decade ago, Kathleen Hunt, a zoologist with the University of Washington, produced a list of a few hundred of the more dramatic transitional species known so far, all of which definitely fit every criteria required of the most restrictive definition. Myriad transitional species have been and still are being discovered, so many in fact that lots of biologists and paleontologists now consider that list innumerable, especially since the tally of definite transitionals keeps growing so fast. Several lineages are now virtually complete, including our own. By the way, the missing link, it's still missing. No, it isn't. Hasn't been for a long time now. There was a missing link in 1859 when there were only two species of humans yet known in the fossil record and no intermediate fossils to link them to any other apes we knew of at that time. Since then, we found the fossils of thousands of individuals of dozens of hominid species, many of which provide a definite link to the other apes. But there were two particular pieces predicted to complete the puzzle. First, it was never supposed that we evolved from any ape species still alive today. Instead, the theory held that chimpanzees and humans were sibling species, daughters of the same mother. So the first link we needed to find was an ancient ape apparently basal to either of us to prove there was a potential progenitor of both groups. We had already found that link in Europe five years before Darwin went public. So we already had an evident chain of transitional species from which only one more link was needed. The theory then required that another extinct hominid be found in strata chronologically between the Miocene Dryopithecus fontana and the earliest known human species, which from 1891 to 1961 was Homo erectus. 
We found lots of candidates, as many as 50 species of apes which are now all extinct, but more than that, the theory also demanded that we find one halfway between humans and other apes in terms of morphology. We found exactly that, too, way back in 1974. Australopithecus afarensis proved to be a fully bipedal ape whose hands, feet, teeth, pelvis, skull, and other physical details were exactly what creationists challenged us to find, yet they're still pretending we never found it. But worse than that, we didn't just find that one. In 1977, three years after we discovered the no longer missing link in the human evolutionary lineage, Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould mentioned an extreme rarity of other clear transitions persistent in the fossil record till that time, and his comment, taken out of context, remains a favorite of creationist quote miners to this day. But in the more than 30 years since then, there has been a paleontological boon such that we now have way more transitional species and many more lineages than we ever needed or hoped for. Now the problem for evolution is that there are too many contenders, while a compounding problem for creationists is that not even one of them should exist if their story was true. And yet they do, by the bushel full. Despite their complaints to the contrary, the intermediate gradations in the human evolutionary line are now so fine that paleoanthropologists can't agree whether they're all different species or merely mildly modified varieties of the same ones such that there are no more links needed for human evolution anymore. But creationists still say we've never found anything that was half ape and half human. Adhering always to black or white absolutes and being thus unwilling to admit any degree of variance other than 100% or zero, they make sure to divide every find into one of two boxes, even when they can't make up their minds which side of that imaginary partition each one belongs to. Demanding an ape man is actually just as silly as asking to see a mammal man, or a half-human, half-vertebrate. How about a half-dachshund, half-dog? It's the same thing. One may as well insist on seeing a town halfway between Los Angeles and California. Because the problem with bridging the gap between humans and apes is that there is no gap, because humans are apes, definitely and definitively. The word ape doesn't refer to a species, but to a parent category of collective species, and we're included. This is no arbitrary classification like the creationists use. It was first determined via meticulous physical analysis by Christian scientists a century before Darwin, and has been confirmed in recent years with new revelations in genetics. Furthermore, it is impossible to define all the characters exclusively indicative of every known member of the family of apes without describing our own genera as one among them. Consequently, we can and have proven that humans are apes in exactly the same way that lions are cats and iguanas are lizards and whales are mammals. So where is the proof that humans descend from apes? How about the fact that we're still apes right now? Creationists often complain that science supposedly says there was only one universal ancestor of all living things and that along the way we evolved both into and then from bacteria. But that doesn't seem to be the case. 21st century revelations in genomic research now imply that the origins of evolution come quite a while after the origins of life. There are now indications that at the root of each of the largest possible taxonomic divisions, there was a point when descent, as it is currently understood, was not yet occurring, at least not in any determinable lineage. And instead, there was a sort of horizontal gene transfer going on, which could not truly be considered part of the evolutionary process. By definition, evolution requires inherited genetic frequencies, but the co-requirement of descent with modification only allows for one series of ancestors, rather than multiple lines of largely unrelated ones being inexplicably blended together.
While taxonomy still points to a single common ancestor for all eukaryotes, that ancestor seems to be one of two or maybe three cellular siblings who evidently did not all descend from any sort of shared conventional parent. So at the point where an actual evolutionary phylogeny began to take over more or less exclusively, the domain eukarya had evidently already emerged separately and quite distinct from either of the prokaryote lineages. The branching tree pattern of Darwin's theory is actually not seen anywhere in the fossil record unless we impose it with our own minds. Wrong, sir! Wrong! The only way to objectively categorize all sorts of life is by their common characters, those features shared by every member of that collective and only by them. This is how those traits become diagnostic and directly indicative of unique groups. Let us also remember that the first man to attempt to classify all living things was a convinced Christian creationist who knew of no other option as he had never heard of evolution and had never even conceived of common ancestry and therefore certainly wasn't trying to defend or promote either one. But the system he originally devised, which is still in use today, determines that everything that is truly alive can be divided into two main branches, which each then continue diverging in an ongoing series of subdivisions emerging within parental sets, henceforth known as clades. The accuracy of divisions at the base of eukarya is still being explored because protista turned out to be way too diverse to be considered a single grouping, but there's no speculation required to determine that humans definitely descend from eukaryotes because it's a verifiable fact that every one of our cells is initially nucleic. Moving on, one notable subset of eukarya is Ropistacanta, whose gamete cells have a single posterior flagellum. One subset of this group is Metazoa, also known as Kingdom Animalia, multicellular opisticons which must ingest other organisms in some sort of digestive tract in order to survive. The biological definition, and in fact even the common dictionary definitions, describe humans as belonging to the animal kingdom. Creationists howl at the idea that they should be animals, but if you have any knowledge at all of what an animal even is, then you know you are one. This isn't a matter of opinion either, it is a fact, and we can prove it. Taxonomy is based as much on an organism's physiognomy, reproduction, and development as it is on the form itself. For this reason, the animal kingdom is then divided between the sponges and everything else more advanced than that, including bilateria. These are triploblast animals which at some stage of development are bilaterally symmetrical. One subset of that is colomata, bilaterally symmetrical animals with a tubular internal digestive cavity. One of its subsequent subdivisions is deuterostomia, colomates in which the early development of the digestive tract begins with the blastopore opening the anal orifice before the one for the mouth. This is a strange thing to have in common with every other higher life form, isn't it? If they were all specially created, one might think that any one of them could develop by some other means or in some other order. Maybe snails would develop like mammals and fish develop like squids, something like that. Something that wouldn't only indicate an inherited trait consistent with both the genetics and morphology of common ancestry. But instead, every vertebrate has red blood while chelicerates and mollusks all have blue blood with no exceptions on either side. Everything we see in nature consistently adheres to everything we would expect of a chain of inherited variations carried down through flowering lines of descent, just as it is in this case too. Starfish, sea urchins, acorn worms, and every single thing that ever had a spinal cord all developed the opening for the anus first. Isn't that odd? The common ancestry model obviously explains this fact, but to date, no would-be critic of evolution has ever been able to offer any alternative explanation for this or any of the other trends we see in taxonomy. The next definitely determinable division includes chordata, deuterostomes with a spinal cord. This group includes craniates, which are chordates with a brain enclosed inside a skull. A subset of this group also includes vertebrates, which have spinal vertebrae descending from the skull, and the next subset is nathostomata, vertebrates that have all that plus a jawbone. 
Remember that we're only following one lineage and that each of the left or right turns we take causes us to overlook the other branches that may become just as hugely diverse as the one we're on, sometimes much more so. But staying on this one course, the next fork in the road lies between nathostomes, whose skeletons are either cartilaginous or calcified. The right turn here leads us to sarcopterygy, bony vertebrates which have both lungs and legs. One subset of that are the stegocephalians, limbed vertebrates with digits on the ends of their appendages. This clade includes a subclade called tetrapoda, which are the now gillless stegocephalians, which are skeletally adapted for four limbs. Included in that are the anthracosaurs, pentadactyl, postaquatic, terrestrial tetrapods. One of the anthracosaurian subsets reveals a seemingly small aberration, but one which is among the rarest and most profound because the difference is developmental. These are usually the most integral and therefore the hardest things to change, and normally wouldn't be expected to be significant unless the environment changed profoundly, as it would in the adaptation from sea to land. The development of the amnion made this transition possible, and it was evidently inherited by all the mammals, reptiles, and birds to come since. Here another division occurs, this time determined by the number of holes appearing in a particular place in the structure of the skull. On the one hand, we have synapsids with one temporal fenestra. On the other hand, we have what are traditionally known as reptiles, starting with anapsids that have no temporal fenestra, and diapsids which have two. That line can be shown to divide between lepidosaurs on one side, which divide into plesiosaurs and other things, including lizards, which also divided into many different subgroups, including snakes. The archosaurs on the other side also divide into crocodilians, phytosaurs, pterosaurs, and dinosaurs, which themselves divide again and again and eventually include a subset we now know as birds. We should expect the phyla, the classes, the orders, families, down to including the genera at least, each would appear fully formed with no transitional form. Wait a minute. Strike that. Reverse it. Thank you. All the taxonomic levels are readily evident, of course, with many more clades now than anyone ever expected to find. So many, in fact, that the original construct can no longer bear the weight of all the new data. But not all the organisms in these clades are yet fully in the forms we find familiar today, because there are so many obvious transitions at every level. One of the many examples of that is a synapsid subset known as therapsids, with increasingly mammal-like skeletal formations, as well as vestigial stages evident in the continually advancing development of the brain. Within that set are cynodonts, therapsids with canine teeth. They're actually a parent clade of theria, the mammals, themselves identified as endothermic, warm-blooded therapsids with lactal glands. Even the ones who eventually lost their canines still belong to this group because some members of the usually fangless mammals still have those teeth. That and, of course, because when something is born without one or more features diagnostic of its parents, it must still be recognized as part of that family. All the mammals alive today belong to one of three major divisions which are only a fraction of the mammal forms that used to exist. In some respects, the platypus is the only surviving karyotype illustrating what was the norm of mammalian diversity, but which is now found only in the fossil record. The most familiar race of modern mammals are eutherians, which have nipples like marsupials but are born in a placenta. This clade contains many subgroups at various levels, one of which includes clades for both bats and primates. Remember how we can objectively verify that every member of all these groups still belongs to every parent clade already listed, and we can do the same for every subdivision from this point on. For example, primates are collectively defined as any gillless, organic, RNA, DNA, protein-based, metabolic, metazoic, nucleic, diploid, bilaterally symmetrical, endothermic, digestive, triploblast, episcotont, deuterostome, collimate with a spinal cord and 12 cranial nerves connecting to a limbic system in an enlarged cerebral cortex with a reduced olfactory region inside a jawed skull with specialized teeth including canines and premolars, forward-oriented, fully enclosed optical orbits and a single temporal fenestra attached to a vertebrate hind-leg dominant tetrapoidal skeleton with a sacral pelvis clavicle and wrist
wrists and ankle bones and having lungs, tear ducts, body-wide hair follicles, lactal memories, opposable thumbs and keratinized dermis and chitinous nails on all five digits and all four extremities. In addition to an embryonic development, an amniotic fluid leading to a placental birth and a highly social lifestyle. And that's what's important. But you know, if anybody wants to believe that they are the descendants of a primate, they are certainly welcome to do it. I don't know how far they will march that back. We don't believe this because we want to, and why would we want to? We believe it because we can prove it really is true and that it applies to everyone, whether you want to believe in it or not. We're not just saying you've descended from primates either. We're saying you are a primate. Humans have been classified as primates since the 1700s when a Christian creationist scientist figured out what a primate was and prompted other scientists to figure out why that applied to us. It wouldn't be this way if different kinds of life had been magically created unrelated to anything else, not unless God wanted to trick us into believing everything had evolved, because the phylogenetic tree of life is plainly evident from the bottom up to any objective observer who dares to compare the anatomy of different sets of collective life forms, but it can be just as objectively doubly confirmed from the top down when re-examined genetically. This is why it is referred to as a twin-nested hierarchy. But there's still more than that, because the evident development of physiology and morphology can be confirmed biochemically as well as chronologically in geology and developmentally in embryology. Why should that be? And how do creationists explain why it is that every single thing fits into all these daughter sets within parent groups, each being derived according to apparently inherited traits? They don't even try to explain any of that or anything else. They won't because they can't, because evolution is the only explanation that accounts for any of this, and it explains it all. 